Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Martellaro. And this week, my guest is the Chair Emeritus for SETI Research at the SETI Institute, Dr. Jill Tarter. Jill, welcome. Hello. Very nice to be here. It is an honor to have you on the show. Dr. Pascal Lee, who's been on the show, kind of introduced us and helped us uh, make first contact. And uh, you have had us just an awesome career for the listeners you are a PhD astrophysicist known for your work in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You're the former director of the Center for SETI Research, 2000-2012, and adjunct professor, Department of Physics and Astronomy at USC until 2014. Currently, you are chair emeritus for SETI Research at the SETI Institute. Pretty darn cool. I hope to talk to you about some wide-ranging issues in SETI, one of my favorite subjects. One of mine, too. But first, I want to ask you about your career. Uh, how did you get started in all this? You've had a long and glorious career. But I wanted to ask you what your early inspirations were, which scientists influenced you, and how this all got going in your life. Well, it was a fortunate accident, actually. Um, I knew how to program a PDP-8 slash S, a very, very early computer. First time we had a computer on our desktop. And uh, that uh, was something I, I learned to do as a graduate student, starting out. And uh, years later, it was given as a surplus uh, piece of equipment to Stu Boyer, an astronomer who had a clever idea of how to use the UC Berkeley Radio Astronomy Telescope at Hack Creek to do SETI. Um, and uh, he recruited me to work with him because I knew how to program the damn thing. What language did you use at the time? Was no it like language. assembly language, machine language? It was, it was Octal, all right? <laughs> My bow before you. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, w- it, that was a very uh, fortunate accident, as I said. Anyway, I, I joined Stu and his uh project at uh at uc berkeley we called it serendip and oh i remember that yeah right and then we just uh i just kept going was that what during your undergraduate because i thought you were at cornell no it was a graduate school i uh, I was okay. a graduate student for a very long time uh, yeah phd in physics or astrophysics takes a while yeah it does it does but you have to have a great capacity for deferred gratification now uh, you get to learn more and more about less and less. <laughs> so you know, you know absolutely everything about nothing. Yep. What was your PhD thesis? Uh, it was about uh, um, how galaxies in clusters of galaxies interact and how they get their gas stripped out of them. And yeah, it had nothing at all to do with SETI. So how did you get launched into SETI. Did you did you start off after your PhD in, in, in postdoc, or how did that go? Oh, it was after Stu recruited me to be part of his Serendip program. Um, I then had a postdoc at uh, NASA Ames, uh, trying to figure out how um, uh, the other part of my thesis was brown dwarfs, little stars that never actually turn on uh, for a long time, and uh, they I fail was, to ignite with fusion, right? They just sort well, of glow. Yeah, they they do a little bit of fusion, and then they just cool off. Whimper the rest out, of their yeah. life, right? Yeah. So I was 
to NASA Ames and I was going to help try and figure out how infrared telescopes might um, might find them. Um, and at NASA Ames, I just reached out and talked to John Billingham, who was starting a small group of uh, scientists thinking about SETI for NASA. And I said, I'd like to be part of that. And that's how it happened. Had the SETI Institute been formed at that time, or did that come No, later? no. I, I helped to incorporate that in 1984. So it was a few years later. Cool, cool. I wanted to ask you um, how SETI technology and thinking has changed over the years. So I was into it pretty heavy myself when I was younger. Now I sort of keep track of it as an amateur. But one of the things that I've noticed that's new is something called techno-signatures. Before we were yeah. looking for intelligent signals, and now we've expanded the scope. Can you tell us about techno-signatures and what that means? Well... It's um, techno signatures is a play on um, biosignatures, which is something that uh, has also gotten uh, a lot of uh, support and enthusiasm more recently. So we're looking for life beyond Earth, right? And that life can be uh, microbial. Or it could be something that has uh, an ability to modify its environment deliberately with technology. And it's uh, so the because biosignatures has um, gotten support and funding under the astrobiology umbrella, uh, we've we've termed what what we're doing. Uh, a search for techno signatures and indeed uh, radio signals which is what SETI has been looking for traditionally and more recently optical signals um, but that's that's just you know a small facet of what might be discoverable if we use new telescopes um, to explore the exoplanets that, that are out there. Um, you could imagine, or maybe you can't, but what I can imagine, that uh, something like the TRAPPIST-1 system that has seven planets uh, orbiting a red dwarf star, um, they're at different distances from their stellar host, so they would be at different equilibrium temperatures. But imagine that we get a telescope that has the ability to resolve or make images of those exoplanets. And suppose that those telescopes showed us that they were all the same. That shouldn't happen uh, in terms of normal physics. It might happen if you engineered each of those planets to be um, desirable from your your extraterrestrial point of view. So, uh, so we're looking for like very Niven-like signs of exactly. planetary engineering that wouldn't be explicit communication means. Right. Yeah. So. Um, what, about, what about things like military radars? Does that fall into that signature? 
sure. in that range. Anything. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so we're trying to, uh, since SETI has a history and you you think of it in one sense of looking for signals, <clears throat> this techno signatures uh, label tries to open up your imagination and uh, the the opportunities to detect some sort of other intelligence, astroengineering, all kinds of different things. Cool. Yeah, that's a that's a change in thinking, Seti, because for the first fifty years, the idea was people would be on sort of a cosmic wa. Um, watering hole, or they would be, you know, everybody would be talking on the hydrogen line, and, and it would be communication that would be explicit. But after what 58 years since Project Osma started, we haven't found that. And so, expanding the uh, envelope is a sensible thing to do. Well, I mean, you you always do what you can. Um. <sighs> If you have radio telescopes, you can look for <clears throat> or you can listen for signals. If you now have the ability <clears throat> with um, huge ground-based telescopes or space telescopes to actually make images of exoplanets, um, then you think about, well, with those tools, what could you look for? What could you do? You always, re- you know, you you just reserve the right to get smarter as you get on, as you go on. SETI is a glorious mixture of really hard astrophysics science and some glorious speculation and philosophy too. One of the thoughts I've had in the past is uh, related to uh, quantum entanglement. You know, there there are some thoughts in the physics community that there is a subspace structure below space time. Uh, on which quantum entanglement communicates. And it could be that we're just listening on the wrong wavelengths. I remember a great story in a book I read about some natives on an island in the Pacific, and they watch this airplane, this airliner fly overhead at 30,000 feet, and they're jumping up and down and waving flags, and and uh, they're communicating on the right, wrong wavelength. Meanwhile, the pilot's on a radio communication to the tower getting ready to land. You know, is there... Is that, a, is that an enduring theme in the philosophy of SETI that there may be systems of communication? Of course, it's, you know, you can't do anything with something you don't really know about yet, but exactly. do, we, do we talk about things like that yet still? Sure. Uh, you, you, you do what you can. And if you, um, we may be doing a fantastic job at exactly the wrong thing, but <laughs> yeah. if we indeed develop new technologies new understandings of the physical world that give us new tools, then we should add those to our arsenal. But if we don't know it yet, we can't do it. Right, right. So another thing I wanted to talk about was this new satellite called TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And it differs somewhat from the glorious Kepler satellite that has discovered so many exoplanets. Can you give us a brief introduction to TESS and how it differs from Kepler? Well, Kepler pointed its telescope at one patch of the sky, at least in its initial phase. And it did an incredible survey of, it had 170,000 targets that it was looking at and looking for planets to 
to pass in front of the star and dim the light from um, the star. How big a planet does it have to be in order to, say, make a perceptible reduction in the brightness of a G-class star? Well, we've actually found planets with Kepler that are smaller than the Earth. Cool. Uh, uh, Jupiters are much easier to find. Um, but Kepler told us that statistically, that every star has at least one planet. That that was just um, incredible. You know, it was absolutely fantastic because when we started, we just didn't know whether planets were um, plentiful or were rare. It was one of the numbers in the Drake equation. We had no idea. We just guessed that until... Right. Until Kepler. Yeah. So as opposed to staring for a very long time at one piece of the sky, Tess will, in fact, um, look at all of the sky. Uh, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, it's going to get it all. Um, But it will be better at finding uh, planets in short period orbits. Uh, so, um, we look forward to, to knowing a whole lot more about, uh, uh, planets than we, than we do now. Uh, I read that, I read that Kepler looked at planets that were a little bit, stars that were a little bit further away and the test was focusing closer. Is that right? The test will be looking at mainly the, um, the the red dwarf stars that are are close by. I mean, they'll look at the whole sky, but that's what it will uh, manage to detect better is planets in orbit around the nearest stars. Okay. Well, we've come to the end of the first segment, and it's time for a commercial break. So in the second half of the show, I want to ask you about uh, some more questions on SETI and the techniques and controversial questions and, and movies and, and some other cool stuff. But first, we have to take a break. Folks, we'll be back in 60 seconds. I'm chatting with astrophysicist Dr. Jill Tarter. We'll be right back. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. Thanks, Kelly. I'm chatting with Dr. Jill Tarter. I have a jackpot question for you. There's lots of them, but one. This stems from me watching you on Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson a few years ago, and if I remember correctly, and I may not, you had some thoughts about advertising our existence. I know from my reading that at one time in the past we did a radio burst to a globular cluster from Arecibo. That there's been plaques on Pioneer and Voyager. Not that they're getting very far into the galaxy, but is, is it wise to advertise our presence? Should we keep a low profile and kind of hunkle down, and do more listening than talking? Um, I think that uh, 
we probably need to um, grow up a little bit ourselves before we start broadcasting to um, the rest of the galaxy. Um, we're a really, really young species in, a, in an old galaxy. Um, we don't know whether it's possible to become an old civilization. Uh, we hope that it's possible. We hope that that humanity has a long future, but we're not we're we're not sure that we can get there yet. So I think that for the moment, it's better to listen and to try and get our act together. Uh, if we do manage to uh, reach a a stable situation and and have some longevity behind us then i think it would be time to um to broadcast but for the moment i think it's better to listen what would you define as a maturity level you know there's a well, russian yeah. astrophysicist who defined levels of civilization i forget his name kardashev yeah the kardashev levels and we're, we're just typically uh, we're what class zero? We're not even class one yet. Is that right? Yeah, we haven't quite gotten to <laughs> class one. Um, I, I think that uh, if we can manage to uh, be good shepherds for the planet, I mean, at the moment we are um, not doing a very good job of. Uh, organizing ourselves and our use of uh, available energies to um, uh, to help the planet stabilize uh, in a in a manner that's good for for at least our species I mean we we just have all of these challenges that don't res- respect national boundaries and we don't seem to be able to organize in a way that allows us to deal with these challenges. I mean, we're we're looking at at a you know we're looking at uh, possibly a very short future as opposed to a long future for humanity. Science fiction movies fantasize about aliens either saving our bacon or communicating with us and giving us knowledge we need. No, I think we're going to have to figure it out ourselves. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it, until we can show good stewardship of the species and mature, uh, nobody's going to be willing to talk to us and can share knowledge with us until we kind of grow up. Right. Yeah. And, and and also, you know, <laughs> we can't answer the questions about who should speak for Earth and, and what should we say. Yeah, that's my next question. So s- suppose in a in a contact movie scenario we get an intelligent signal uh, through radio telescopes and it's chock full of information and it demonstrates an an alien super advanced species who's virtually sent us a galactic encyclopedia for us to decipher. Yeah, that is was there, Carl Sagan's dream. <laughs> is, is there a protocol established for how astronomers communicate this to the governments and how governments communicate to the citizens? Well, um, back when SETI was a NASA project, we certainly had such a protocol. In, in fact, it went into such detail as to 
who got to uh, inform which committees of Congress and who got to talk to the executive, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Today, because SETI is privately funded, uh, there is no such detailed protocol, but in fact, um, there is a, a loose set of principles which basically say, do good science, figure it out before you start um, advertising, that uh, we, in fact, basically will use the um, um, uh, social media uh, is actually what's going to happen. Uh, so, so you've considered a case where you reveal the information to the government and the government covers it up? No, no, I, and that's not going to happen. No. We have we have something that we um, started a long time called uh, called the Rio scale, and we've just revised it uh, to the Rio 2.0, and it essentially tries to give like the Richter scale for earthquakes. It tries to uh, assign a numerical value to the significance of a detection. So, in a, among other things, it allows us to give a value of zero to just hoaxes and nonsense. And there's been a, you know, the past few years have seen some of that. Um, but scientists actually try and evaluate the significance of the detection. So do we know what the source is? Is it close? Is it far away? Is it, uh, is there any chance that it could be instrumental and mm-hmm. not legal and all of this kind of thing? So, I mean, we're, we're intent on making as much information as possible public as soon as possible. Um, but we always keep in mind the the potential for those really smart Caltech undergraduates, right, who have an uh, uh, intention of hoaxing us. <laughs> well, in a case where it's genuine and it's certified genuine by all the astrophysicists on the planet, um, are there studies or protocols for dealing with um, perhaps irrational or um, unusual religious reaction, or is that something you're just going to wait and say, well, we'll come to that when we come to it? Yeah, well, we've held a number of workshops, because that's what you always do, is, is mm-hmm. get a bunch of people together to talk about it. And um, in terms of the best input that we've had from religious experts and social scientists and um vatican uh physicists yeah well that no they okay so the world's major religions have no problem with this right it's only the fundamentalists uh in particularly in the u.s Uh. that uh, that postulate a very special relationship between humans and and jesus christ uh and, and they would find it difficult to deal with this. The, the rest of the world's religions are, you know, God is good and wonderful and can do anything and so can create life of other kinds on other planets. It's um, not well known that the Vatican keeps a, a group of uh, scientists, biologists and 
philosophers and physicists and astrophysicists and the Vatican Science Group to advise the Pope. Um, yeah. That's well, just have- one religion that does that. I don't know if others do. Um, I'm actually not aware of um, the uh, formal arrangements of other religions. I do know that the Vatican has a great set of telescopes. Uh, been involved in astronomy for a long time. But the point is that um, when we hold these workshops, the best that we've been able to do is that the world will respond uh, to the detection of uh, extraterrestrial intelligence in terms of whatever belief systems are around at the moment. That doesn't tell you a lot. Uh, So I think the best thing that we can do is just keep talking about this and to um, inform the world around the globe about what we're doing and the possibility for a positive outcome. Yeah, the more we talk about it, the more mature as a species we, we become, the, the better we'll be able to deal with it. Just right. We've got to move on. So my next question is, uh, I had, as you know, I had Dr. Pascal Lee on the show, and he's been spending a lot of time working with the Drake Equation, and I also read in the September's Scientific American, Dr. John Gribben, both of them assert it's very likely we're alone in the galaxy just because of statistics and the rarity of, of advanced technical civilizations. Um, how do you feel about that? Does, is that an outlier approach or is that consensus thinking? No. Well, nobody knows. And that's exactly the reason that we should look. So... Phil Morrison. Yeah, but thanks to Kepler, we can start plugging numbers into the Drake equation. No, 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 no. You no. can't. In, <laughs> that equation is not something that you can calculate anything with. It's a wonderful way of organizing our ignorance. <laughs> okay. Beyond that, you, you cannot, you know, when, when the, um, as Phil Morrison once told me, um, when the error bars are in the exponent that it's not a subject that is going to um, allow itself to be uh, settled theoretically. I'll remember that one. That's good. Got to do the experiment. You have to look. Yeah. Yeah. All right. right. Um, So NASA's involved again. They, They got out of the SETI business in 1996 and then I read recently that they okay, but they're back in the game with ten million dollars. Is that maybe? Uh, maybe we don't haven't have seen the money yet. Yet we do. no. Come on, we're still in a continuing resolution. Okay, the, the, the budget has not been settled for the coming year. Um, there is on the house side. There is uh, a a ten million dollar figure for for SETI, uh, not on the Senate. So whatever happens, so, so omnibus, minibus, however they're going to settle this budget question this year, um, we'll see what comes out of it. Okay. So is it a major boost compared to the current private funding, or is it just a sure. additional? Anything, anything compared to zero is infinite, right? <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, if it's just a small delta, then you continue business as usual. But if it's a big delta, you could start doing some new initiatives. Yeah, 
$10 million a year, you could do something with that. That would be great. What do you think might happen? What would would be perhaps one of the candidate projects for that money? Well, we've actually had um, at congressional mandates, we've actually had some, again, more workshops on this idea of techno signatures. Um, The National Academy of Sciences has held a a series of meetings um, of a subcommittee on techno signatures and um, we've, we've tried to explore what possible things could be uh, considered. And in, in particular, as we're building these new fabulous ground-based and, and, and um, orbital telescopes, what kinds of things we should be looking for, how we could uh, potentially augment the capabilities of these telescopes to to be sensitive to different kinds of techno signatures. I mean, the the whole um, process of the budget and um, has rattled a number of cages, and NASA is actually taking it seriously and taking a look at at what's uh, what's possible and what's feasible and what would be good ideas. And so. As I think you probably are aware, the astronomy and astrophysics community is beginning the process of a decadal review. So getting together and organizing uh, as a community and prioritizing what we should do as, um, as science for the next decade. And so we're all sitting down and writing white papers, you know, and to support the science cases for what we could do uh, with, with new telescopes and, and additional funding. And so we'll, we'll see what shakes out, you know, at, at the end of the process. Does SETI end up above the cut or below? Okay, cool. Well, we're coming to the end of the show, starting to run out of time just a little bit. And I wanted to finish up with some fun pop culture approaches. So uh, one of the things I've been curious about, dying to ask you, there's a movie with uh, Amy Adams called The Arrival. And so this ship lands, and then they go corralling for a linguist and pull her out of the university and say, help! <laughs> if there were a physical visit, is, is, is the movie Arrival bear any resemblance to reality? What wow. do you think? I don't know. I actually really like the movie, and I, I love the concept that if you if you write in a circle, then you have to know the future as well as the past. I thought that was one of the the, the most interesting concepts from from that movie. Is that the way things would happen? Boy, I just can't tell you. It it all <laughs> it <clears throat> it all depends on how it happens yeah. how, you know are they are are what arrives great big strange things or small little artificial intelligences and would it be individual minds or would it be a group mind something right. we're not accustomed to but has been discussed in star trek in the form of the borg and uh, so we're not quite ready to deal with the nature we, we sort of sort of tend to anthropomorphize don't we 
tend sure. to see aliens as images of ourselves. And I think we're in for a big surprise well, if it ever happens. The thing that we have to remember is we can't get there yet with our technology. So if they can get here, their technology is significantly more advanced than ours. And they are going to write the script. Is there any basis to believe that advanced technology means a kinder, gentler, or a civilization? I imagine there are poachers in Africa killing giraffes and big cats with iPhones in their pockets. Uh, yeah. and, and there is a there is a enduring feeling in this community that I have read that says, once you reach the point where you're an intelligent, mature species, you have more respect for life. But it's not guaranteed. And there's a lot of science fiction about how advanced technology wouldn't necessarily have the same social values we have. Well, actually, advanced to me means older. Um, and I think in that sense, to become an older civilization, you probably necessarily need to lose the kind of aggressive uh, characteristics uh, that probably helped you to get point. intelligent in the first place. Good point. So, I mean, Steven Pinker has this long series of books um, talking about how... Um, Stephen Pinker, I tried to get him on the show and he was too busy, but he was very kind and gracious. Yeah, okay. So, but but his point is that um, cultural evolution, right, leads to kinder and gentler. Because uh, if you don't do that, you don't last. Right, right. You learn how to survive. It's the litmus test of the galaxy. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, well, we're out of time. This has been wonderful. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your thoughts with me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Uh, tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. Um, Jill at SETI.org. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, we have to leave it there. Thanks again for being on the show with me. It was great. Listeners, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.